1: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you never have to host or leave your house. This month's pick is The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. It's a short story collection with a novella called The Office of Historical Corrections. It is amazing. I am thrilled to talk to the author about it. Danielle is here with us now. Hello. Hello. Good morning. I am just so excited to talk to you about this book. Um, I have to say, I am one of those people who usually doesn't really connect with short stories. I think often because if I don't really enjoy it, I'm sort of like, why did I bother reading this? And if I did really like it, I'm like, why isn't this just a goddamn novel? (laughs) Um, But there was something about like the bite-sized bits that you managed to put together in this book that it was just like I was just so happy to be on the ride the entire time and I I don't know how you did it. I don't know if you can tell me how you did it, but I just <laughs> want to say it's amazing.
2: Well, I'm I'm glad to be converting people to the short story form. I really do I really do love short stories. I mean probably I love a collection because I think often when you're writing you're writing about something that you don't have a Clear answer on, and mm. a collection allows you to ask the same question over and over again and answer it different ways and kind of look at it from different angles. And so mm. I think you can see a writer kind of thinking about something and not necessarily figuring it out. But I like that thinking and I like that conversational space and I like that, that range of motion But in an individual short story, I also think works best. When it just has this density. You know, my favorite not favorite altogether maybe, but my the people who I sort of admire in the form and think of as models in the form are Alice Munro and Edward P. Jones, who are just magicians with time. Like sometimes you don't even know how they did it, but there's sometimes just the right amount of the future or just the right amount of the past that the story feels like like being alive feels, right? It feels like in any given moment, something intense is happening that's capturing your, intention, your attention, but there's also all of this history to it that, that the characters are carrying into the moment and these slight flashes of what it's all going to mean. And I think when it comes together really well, it feels like you're, you're in all time at once. And that is when a story feels most effective to me because it kind of captures that sensation of all the things happening, but it, it's all in like one paragraph.
1: Oh my God. That's such a beautiful way of putting that. I completely agree. And I don't know. I mean, so much of life is these like flitting moments where you're going through and having all of these different experiences in any given day. And so to experience that with the collection can be such a delight too.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that my first book was largely coming of age stories. And so a lot of them follow a pretty classic narrative arc, right? Where Mm -hmm. the emotional event of the story and the sort of actual event or narrative event or plot event are the same thing, right? Something is, somebody's making a decision or something's happening Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. what people are reacting to. And I think these stories are a little bit different, not all of them, but a lot of them in that sometimes the sort of, the active plot really is about the day-to-day choices being made to evade or avoid the thing that actually matters. And so the moment in the story that's actually where the emotional plot comes to the surface is when someone sort of can't run from the thing that matters anymore. (laughs) So it's a kind of different narrative shape, but I had fun with it. And I think maybe amplifies that sort of sense of, there is a surface plot that sometimes just does feel like somebody kind of going through their day to day and there's something underneath it. And it sort of comes closer and closer to the surface as you get closer and closer to the end of the story.
1: It's so interesting to hear you say that, because I think one of the things that I found most fascinating about this collection is that so many characters in it are in kind of a liminal space, you know? I mean, you have a character who isn't getting any younger, but maybe she isn't getting much older either, or the one who tours Alcatraz and she's standing in this empty cell thinking about how easy it is to feel stuck, but how easy it is to walk out. Like, it seems like so much in this book kind of weighs on choices that either are or aren't made which i think is such a fascinating i mean i don't know in some ways that is the drama that so many of us are dealing with in any given day right
2: yeah absolutely i mean i think it's it's complicated to be a writer who's really interested in story and character and also be really interested in structural power because Mm -hmm. it's it's easy to write a story in which people don't have choices. And I think that there are many kind of stories where the tragedy is lack of choice, right? And in terms of the actual world that we live in. And I think our moral investment in fiction comes from feeling like people are making choices. And so sometimes there's a tension there Mm -hmm. because you want, you want something to sort of engage the reader in the way that you would yell at a movie, like, don't go into the basement. You know, you want people to have that moment of rooting for your characters or rooting against their decisions. Mm -hmm. But you also want to acknowledge that the world is not made up of infinite choices. And, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on your particular position, and it may be made up of very few.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The stories in this collection can be really intense. I mean, you're dealing with themes around, you know, racism and grief and, and making difficult choices when the odds are obviously stacked against you. But there's always at least one very funny line in each of these stories. Like, the, there's an incisiveness that, like, sometimes I cackled with glee as I read some of these stories. Is humor something that, like, is just part of the palette of colors that you work with when you write a story? Or, or do you have to kind of go back and make sure there is some levity to them? Like, how does that work for you?
2: Yeah. No, I delete more jokes than I add. Do you really? That's amazing. <laughs> sometimes it's sort of, you realize totally you get somewhere by the end of the story where some of the jokes just don't fly anymore because um, they're too light. And I think humor for me is largely about character. And so it can work differently in different stories depending on the perspective. You know, some people's humor is aggressive. Some people's humor mm-hmm. is self-deprecating. Some some people's humor is defensive. And so sometimes where somebody is making jokes tells me something I don't necessarily know when I start the story about who that character is, if I'm in first or close third, Um, partly what I'm learning is their voice and learning something about their psychology through their voice. But I also think, I mean, so much of this book is about grief and humor and grief feel really closely related to me, partly, partly just as a sort of defense mechanism, but, but also because I think that so much of what humor does is, create a sense of community, right? That so much of humor is funny because of the particular way in which somebody else understands it. Hmm. Um, I think that one of the ways that we sort of know who our people are is we know who laughs at our jokes. <laughs> and so something that humor can do is mark an absence, right? Like is a joke still funny if it's no longer shared with the person who shared it? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when trying to write about things like grief and loneliness, I think sometimes humor can can kind of do double work. It can be funny, and it can also mark the sort of space in which there should be somebody else there laughing. Hmm.
1: So when it comes to putting together a collection like this, I feel like you sort of answered this question, but I'm, I'm curious, like, with something like this, is it a matter of just sort of looking around at what you've written and, and seeing what's the most publishable? Or are you kind of curating different stories that feel like they're asking the same questions?
2: I think I I don't think of something as a collection until I have a body of work. So for a long time, I'm just working on one story at a time. And I tend to draft really quickly and revise really slowly. Hmm. So it's kind of a story by story question of when is the story ready to go out in the world? And I think that, you know, once i would gotten kind of up to three or four stories, I had these various things I would say about what the book was, because I thought, okay, now I'm working toward a collection. But they were all mostly wrong. (laughs) I think I... (laughs) I would say something and sometimes I would say something like for years or in an official document because I I work in academia and they make you like declare your five-year plan once a year and so I would say I'm working on this collection where all the stories are in the present tense and then I go back and read them and be like oh damn like they're not or I'm working on a collection that's about kind of interracial relationships familial and otherwise and That was sort of true, but not consistently. And so every time I'd say something, I'd be like, oh, well, this story doesn't fit. And yet it still feels like it goes with the others. Mm -hmm. So what do I do with that? And then I think it took me until the second to last story that I wrote for the collection, um, which is a story called Why Won't Women Just Say What They Want, to sort of see what the book was doing. Because I think that's a story, even though in some ways it's an outlier in the collection, that asked very explicitly some of the questions that the other stories were asking with more subtlety. And so I could suddenly see, it was like, okay, this is a book about how we tell stories about things that happened. It's a book about what happens if we rethink who the protagonist is. It's a story about um, kind of asking questions about apology and correction and what the possibilities of that are and who apology belongs to. And I could suddenly see that in all the other stories and that clarified for me what I needed to do to finish the book. And so the novella was, it ended up being the last thing I finished for the book because I could suddenly see what the book actually was. And so that was another one of the pieces that that more clearly asked the question that kind of only in retrospect could I see that all the other stories were asking in some way.
1: More with Danielle Evans in just a minute. So, yeah, you mentioned the novella and the fact that there is a strong focus on the idea of of historical accuracy, too, throughout this book. Um, you see it in the first story, also Happily Ever After. There's a Black protagonist. She works in the gift shop of a Titanic-themed living history museum, which I can't say without laughing because it's just, like, so intense and ridiculous. Um, but the institution has decided that her race precludes her from being one of the performers in the history. She has to work in the gift shop. Um there's also the title story, as you mentioned, which is about two women who are also black who work for the Institute of Public History, which means they're government employees who go around correcting misinformation. Um, I have so many questions about that story. I thought it was gorgeous and fascinating. Um, how did you like, so these employees, they go around, they essentially have label makers and they can like print off these embossed stickers that correct things. So there's like one instance where, Someone's at a bakery and there's, like, errors about Juneteenth. And so she, like, prints off this thing and puts the sticker on. And it's, like, kind of passive aggressive. And, like, it's just, like, so awkward and perfect and strange and hilarious. How much do you think the especially last four years under the Trump administration influenced your desire to write that story. I just think so much about, you know, especially as a member of the media, how many conversations we had about like, can we call it a lie? Is it an untruth? Like, if he intention, you know, like there were just so many questions thrown up all of a sudden about like what facts are. And I know that's not necessarily new, but it just seemed to be very much a part of the conversation, especially recently. And I thought that your story was such a fascinating way of looking at that.
2: Yeah I and mean, you know I was working on versions of that for so long that in some ways the challenge was how to make it not feel super topical <laughs> because things that I did not intend to be topical had something become topical and I was like well I can't avoid them all together so that was in some ways the balancing act of how is this like a slightly different future but one that speaks to the world that we're in and in fact it's funny that you mentioned that Juneteenth moment because I finished that you know the book went into press in like the fall of 2019 I'd finished the the novella in 2018 and then in the summer of 2020 I felt like there was a whole week when all people were doing was correcting facts about Juneteenth and I was like no my book is already in galleys <laughs> and no everyone's just gonna think that <laughs> this is like some law and order like from the headline story so there are lots of moments like that, that happened and I just thought of you know if, if this writing thing doesn't work out maybe I will try being a psychic or something <sighs>
1: It's so funny to hear you say that because, yeah, I mean, I like I recently read a book that involved they never named anyone, but it was very clearly about the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh and the testimony and the whole thing. And like I couldn't even read it because it it just was so fraught for me to experience those emotions. But I think you did a great job of like skirting around it just enough that I was like, oh, yeah, we can dive into like we can bask in this. And there's something truly satisfying about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been, the thing about the agency, I mean, part of it came from a running joke where, which, you know, I started saying like years and years ago, I think I was on the train in DC and just, I think, I wish if I knew that it was going to be important later, I would have taken better notes, but I wish I remember what I heard someone say, but it was, it was some like wildly incorrect thing. I think it was about the Haitian revolution. It was like, it wasn't that obscure, but it was something that somebody was just very wrong about. And I remember being like, you know, I wish I would pay like five extra dollars a year. there'd be an agency that picked it. And of course, immediately I realized that would also be kind of terrifying. I didn't actually want that agency to exist, Um, especially under the Trump administration, right? Where I think that also the thing that was happening when the book came out was there actually was like a a government commission on correcting history being made. And I was like, oh no, it's the bizarro world version of what I invented. That's not what I asked for at all. But of course, um, I mean, that's the thing about government is that in some ways, I grew up in DC. I'm a child of government employees. And so it is in some ways, the best chance we have of believing the public good. And it's also can certainly be a force for, you know, trauma. And so I think it's always hard to figure out how to be a person in an institution who means well. And so that was one of the things I wanted to to be able to write about, which is a question I think that exists under any administration, right? Like people go into all kinds of organizations, especially as public servants, because they want to change things. Um, and then it's actually really hard to change things. So mm-hmm. I felt like that fraughtness was part of a larger question that hopefully would transcend any particular administration but might feel particularly acute if you're someone who's a civil servant who's been a civil servant for a very long time and suddenly finds yourself you know, in a position where you, you can't do the things you went into the job for and are being asked to do things um, that are sort of appalling to you.
1: Yeah, I kind of like the idea of a government official stationed in places correcting people when they are saying things that are factually untrue. But like, but yeah, I think you're right that that's also kind of a terrifying idea. I also think the fact that like the impact of these specific employees and the work they were doing was very difficult to measure also made it extra hilarious just in terms of like, I mean, what can a government agency really do, though, you know? (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's part of also what I was trying to capture is this idea that people get, like, excited about ideas and then, like, don't actually invest in them. So they have, like, you know, minimal staff and minimal budget. And it's like, what are they going to do against all of these things that they're sort of up against, even internally? So I had to sort of figure out how I could make that passive problem active. And so it was a way for me to make that labor of kind of wrestling with the past also feel active and have more immediate stakes um, but I've been thinking about that sort of question about how we tell stories about the past for a really long time.
1: Hmm, it's gorgeous. In that story, in the Office of Historical Corrections, there's a white supremacist militia group that pre- prefers to be called white preservationists. Um, I'm curious what you think are the the stakes of that kind of linguistic slippage, because I think it's fair to say it's something we've seen a lot of, especially over the last couple of years.
2: You know, there's a part of it that just, I, I don't know, because I'm sort of like, what is the value in being a racist and insisting that you not be called a racist, right? Like being in some ways proudly openly racist and also sort of being appalled. And I think in some ways, increasingly, I think the value is in the way that allows you to make a declaration about reality, right? It's not, it's not actually about the name, it's about the naming, right? It's about who gets to do the naming. Um, and I think that that's what I've arrived at, because I don't think... I think there are a lot of people who have beliefs that they're not actually ashamed of but then they don't want those beliefs called what they are and i think in some ways that's just like a structural power relationship right it's like i get to tell you what words mean and so i don't know i mean i, I think it's a thing that i'm thinking about but i think that that's the best answer i've come up with is that it's not actually about cognitive dissonance But i think there are some things that are generally about cognitive dissonance about people like trying to hold things at once. But I don't know that that's one of them. I think that 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 is just about power.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's about like who gets to choose the terms and who's in who's in charge of the conversation.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think that one of the things a couple of the stories in this book do, I hope, is start with something that feels like a familiar narrative and make it weirder and more complicated by questioning who the story actually belongs to. Mm mm-hmm. Um, and kind of open up some space there. And so one of the things that I was trying to do was play with structure a little bit to think about how we can interrupt stories that we feel like we know what the stories are. Mm.
1: Ah, I just feel like you've blown my mind consistently for the past 20 minutes and I love it. You've talked about how much you appreciate being in conversation with other writers of color as opposed to having to be the spokesperson for the entire community And I was curious if there are other books, other writers that you see as really being in conversation with the Office of Historical Corrections.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think part of I'm very excited to talk about some of their books, but I also think that like part of what I want to say there is that what's interesting to me about just how many how many writers of color are being published right now, Mm -hmm. how many other black short story writers, even if we wanted to narrow it down, is mm-hmm. that it makes, it makes room for people to be weirder and more distinct, right? It makes yes. room for people to be doing wildly different things. And so part of what I'm excited about is that that conversation is often between books that don't feel similar to me at all, but that creates more room for everybody to do what they're most interested in. Um, but I think some of the sort of recent books that I'm really excited about are um, Jamal Brinkley's A Lucky Man, uh, Rianne Scott's uh, The World Doesn't Require You, A former student of mine, Dante Almoniz's Milk Blood Heat just came out, which is a really gorgeous collection. Um, Nifissa Thompson Spires, Heads of the Colored People. um, Sally Solomon's Get Down is one of my favorite kind of story collections. It's a little bit older than than some of those others. Um, But I just think that there are so many people doing interesting things with the forum. And then, you know, just sort of really great novel that just came out, um, uh, Donnie Walton's The Final Revival of Obel and Nev. but people are thinking about all kinds of kind of voice and performance in all kinds of really interesting ways. And so one of the things that's interesting to me is just when when there are more voices, there's more room for everybody to be their own kind of weird artistic self.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think it's really exciting because Yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't have to tell you like the idea of a monolith. It's ludicrous in so many different ways. And, you know, I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that like the more stories we get, the better off everyone is, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also fun because of that sort of the way that a story collection in some ways forces a conversation about craft in a way that I think that sometimes People find a way to talk about novels in ways that are reductive as though they 're purely autobiographical or they're purely um polemic and I think because short story collections can be confounding and that they have so many different voices, some of which seem to be an argument with each other, sometimes it sort of forces a smarter discourse about race
1: hmm that's a really interesting it makes sense though it makes total sense um one thing we were wondering about is. This might be kind of an impossible question, but is there one historical inaccuracy that you would want to correct once and for all if you could? Uh,
2: I don't know if there's like a single one. I think that just this year in particular, it's become clear to me how many of our current political erasures or problems or inability to have conversations stem. From erasure or misunderstandings or misrepresentations of the Reconstruction period. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. if I could make everyone take like a two week crash course on the history of Reconstruction, <laughs> that <laughs> might do a lot of good just in terms of understanding the sort of actual aftermath of the Civil War and how it shaped so much kind of policy and politics, um, including things that are relevant to conversations about things like voting rights and economic disparities and things that people are sort of making claims about that are very contemporary and also very rooted in history. So if I could, if I could expand that to a period of study and not just like one fact, that's what I would do is make people study the reconstruction era.
1: I think that's a really good one. Sometimes under that we assign people homework. Maybe that's what we should have be the homework assignment in addition to reading this book for book club.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
1: Danielle Evans, thank you so much for talking with me and for writing such a fucking fabulous book. Thank
2: you so much. Thank you so much for reading it.
1: Danielle Evans, author of the Office of Historical Corrections, an excellent short story collection that you should read and then tell us your thoughts about. Read it. Then let us know what you think. You can send a voice memo to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Questions, thoughts, feelings, vibes, favorite quotes, whatever it is we would love to hear from you. We are recording our panel discussion next Friday, and then you can hear it on Tuesday, the 27th. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter, and our executive producer is Brendan Bannazak. We will see you for book club discussion in two weeks.